perish every fond ambition. I love those words, the heartbeat of the Christian life in many ways as we think about what happens when we are converted. Going about life, all kinds of ambitions. Life is about fulfilling self, personal fulfillment, reaching our goals, pursuing our dreams. And then Christ changes our hearts. Christ becomes king. And when Christ becomes king, all those other ambitions melt away. So we praise God for his grace. We struggle, don't we, every day with those fond ambitions which have not fully perished in us, those things that tempt us to follow self rather than our king. But we praise God that he has brought us to belong to himself and that he's gathered us here this morning to worship him as a local church. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you. We're glad you're here and we do pray that uh, this would be a time, as we have uh, listed in our order of service, a time of instruction as we come to God's Word. I will say, uh, as you go through passages in Romans, I, I remember texting a friend, uh, a, f- a fellow pastor, uh, some time ago, and I was telling him that we were going through the book of Romans, and he said, ooh, that's hard, that's, that's tough. And I have experienced that as I've gone through. It seems as though every passage is just uh, filled with uh, little debatable issues, debatable words and phrases and clauses. And by the way, that should comfort us rather than cause us uh, consternation about the reliability of the Bible because it reminds us that for 2,000 years, in the case of New Testament books, for 2,000 years, Christians have poured over these writings. They've dug and dug and dug the volumes that you find just on one of Paul's little epistles is amazing. And that in the midst of all that, all of that research, all of that digging, the Bible stands. So it's, uh, I think, a testimony to uh, the rock-solid confidence that we ought to have in the Holy Scriptures. These are not just words written by men, but as Peter tells us that these are words written by men who are carried along by the Holy Spirit so that when we open up the Bible, we are hearing the voice of God, the Creator, the one who made us for His glory. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. We're working our way through Romans, and this is where we are, Romans 4, 13 to 17. The title for the sermon this morning, which I'll go ahead and give you, is The Promise to Abraham. Nothing too fancy. We see it's the first few words of verse 13, but promise occurs several times in this passage, and it really is the main idea. But as we're going to see, promise in relation to law and faith and so forth. But the big idea here is the promise to Abraham. For several weeks now, we've been looking at Paul's argument. And by the way, that is what makes Paul sometimes so difficult to interpret, is that he is making very precise arguments. 
Uh, going through Genesis was a lot easier in some respects because you get these large chunks of narrative. Now, sometimes it's a lot harder because you have to figure out uh, what to do with and how to understand, say, uh, Lot's daughters or what's going on uh, in passages similar to that that were very difficult. Laban and Jacob and his wives and so forth. So challenging in that respect, but Paul is difficult because he's always making a case. He's always making an argument. Even when he exhorts or praises, he is arguing a case. And the case is always Christ. He preaches Christ and him crucified. And so we must follow carefully the logic of the Apostle Paul from paragraph to paragraph to paragraph, from from word to phrase to clause to sentence, all the way up to an entire book. But Paul's argument that we have been following now for some time is that human beings are justified, and that's a fancy Bible word. I know if you didn't grow up with the Bible, justified meaning, and we use it, but it is a, a richly theological word meaning declared right with God. So there is a God. He made us. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. It's obvious there is a God. It is a, an obvious reality. God made us. He designed us for his glory. And, and he's perfect and holy. And, and the great difficulty or the great problem, I should say, of humanity, the great plight of humanity is that we're not right with him. We're not right with him. And the great glory of the gospel is that through the gospel, God declares us right with him. And so Paul is arguing that human beings are made or declared, rather, right with God by faith alone. That's Paul's big argument in this chunk of Romans. Declared right with God by faith alone. And if we wanted to summarize up to this point, Paul's argument so far in Romans, I think we would go to two places. So as I thought about this, it's good to do this repeatedly because sometimes we lose sight of what's been said before. And you can't do that if you're going to understand each passage. We have to put it in its context. And so as we come to chapter 4, 13 to 17, I want to ask the question, where are some places that sort of pull it all together for us as we enter this passage? And I think two of those would be first Romans 3, 24 to 20, or 23 to 24. Romans 3. 23 to 24. It says this. It's on the wall over there. Don't expect everyone to turn and look, but here it is. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what that tells us is all are sinners and salvation is given by God as a free gift through Christ. Big idea. All our sinners, salvation comes from a gracious God as a free gift through Jesus Christ. Huge idea. Basically covers everything up to that point. Then, Romans 4, 4 to 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, But believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as 
righteousness. So, what we see here is that this declaration of right standing before God is only by faith. God does it graciously through Christ. We receive it only by faith. It is apart from works. It is apart from anything we do. We must simply put our trust in the one who justifies sinners through the work of Jesus Christ. Big idea of what we have seen so far. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the patriarch Abraham because he's the focus of all of chapter 4. And it really is remarkable that Paul would spend so much time going through the biography of an Old Testament figure. But right here, couched in the middle of his articulation of justification by faith, the very heart of the gospel, Paul spends all of this time going back to this historical Old Testament figure, Abraham. Paul is using Abraham as the great and early illustration of justification by faith. He quotes, in order to do that, from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Contrary to the Jewish thinking of Paul's day, Abraham was not justified by works. So if you would have walked up to a Jew on the street or you would have gone into your local synagogue in Paul's day, there would have been the idea that Abraham was held up as the great worker. He was faithful, obedient, and he, as it were, merited God's favor. God looked down from heaven and he's looking for a good guy And he finds that in Abraham. That's the idea. Paul says, absolutely not. That's not the way we ought to think about Abraham, specifically with regard to his relationship to God. Rather, Abraham was declared right with God by faith alone. Circumcision. The chief work or Jewish identity marker came long after God declared Abraham righteous. So if you asked a Jew in Paul's day about Abraham, he would be held up as the great worker. But even more, he, what would be emphasized is his, circum, his circumcision. God gave circumcision to Abraham, commanded him in Genesis 17 to circumcise his male descendants, at the time, that included the 13-year-old Ishmael, to circumcise himself. And after that, circumcision became a marker really of two things. One, adherence to the law, because we see it prescribed later in the Mosaic law. But secondly, it became a marker of Jewish identity. And Jewish identity is linked to the law. They had God, they had his law, They had the sign of it all in circumcision. They were good to go. Everyone else, well, condemned. But the Jews were good to go. That's what Paul is speaking into largely as we go through his argument. 
So let me use the language of one commentator as he tries to get at what Paul is doing here in chapter 4, going back and then moving forward. He comments that we've seen justification apart from works. That was in the early part of chapter 4. And then we saw justification apart from circumcision. That's what we looked at last week. And now today, as we move into verses 13 to 17, we see that justification is apart from law. So Paul is just chopping away. Imagine, think of it that way. Paul is whittling down a self-righteous confidence that one might have before God in order to point them to Christ alone for salvation. So what we have here today is justification apart from law. And the reason... It is apart from law is because it comes through promise. Big word, promise. If it is promise, then it can't be law. And that's what we're going to see here in a moment. So if you would please go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. This is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable for God's people. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is The adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So we're going to go ahead and stop there. You can go ahead and be seated. This week we're looking at the promise to Abraham, and then next week we're going to move into the faith of Abraham, where we specifically look at the quality and character of Abraham's faith, which tells us what saving faith looks like for the Christian. You know, one of the things that makes a passage like this so challenging to preach and to listen to a sermon on is that what we're doing here is biblical theology. And what I mean by that is passages like this are challenging because they force us to ask big questions about how the Bible fits together. They they force us to ask big questions about how history has unfolded and how Christ is the center of that history. And so it's not one of those things where we just come to it and we get sort of three keys for life tomorrow or something like that. Although we do want to draw out the implications and applications of this passage, what we're really meant to do is enter into a deeper understanding of what our Bible is telling us about God's plan. Some of the 
characters, some of the language, some of the practices are so uh, distant to us. Circumcision, Abraham, the law, ideas that are just so far away to our everyday lives. But what we find as we enter into these passages, as we understand God and his purposes through Christ, is we come to see ourselves as part of this great story. If we're Christians, we are. And we begin to see that the Bible is truly our book. It's our book. It's our story. And that the same God who was doing all of this is doing it now in our lives. And the implications for that just begin to explode as we are living our daily lives. So let me go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would help us as we try to determine what's Paul saying here in this passage by the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the Bible. Thank you for how it makes clear to us your nature, your purposes, what you are doing in history. Not just what you did in the past that we can learn from and apply to our own lives, but what you are doing now in light of the past and in light of your promises that bear on our very future. So God, help us to understand your word today. Help us to see your glory and the glory of your Christ. And help us to take delight and courage and joy in these truths. Because of who we are in Christ. And Father, I pray that those among us, uh, perhaps if there is among us today, those who are unbelievers. Lord, that they would see, that they would be drawn to be a part of this story that they would be drawn to to know you, the living God who makes these kinds of promises, who has done this kind of work, and who is indeed now with your people. So God, we just pray that you would work among us this morning by your power, by your faithfulness, your love for sinners. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we follow... Paul's argument into this emphasis on promise, which is where we're at, I think we find three things as we consider the promise to Abraham. And these are our three points, if you're writing them down. You will be able to fit these on the back of that card there with uh, some other notes if you prefer or you want to write that somewhere else. So here they are. The promise defined, the promise upheld, and the promise extended. That's what we find as Paul enters into this argument that centers on this idea of promise. So first, the promise defined. Let's look at verse 13 together. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Here, I think Paul gives a definition of the promise. During our time walking through Genesis, we repeatedly saw this idea of promise. It was the big idea. As we went through Genesis very slowly, we saw repeatedly the concept, the idea of promise, and it was always connected to 
the faithfulness of God. So when we got done with Genesis, and even when we were in Genesis, I, had, I would have people come up to me and say, man, I've just never seen God this way. I've really come to understand God's faithfulness. How clearly displayed God's faithfulness is in those chapters of Genesis. And his faithfulness is always tied to his promises because that's what, we, that's what faithfulness means. It means that you keep your word. God makes promises and he keeps those promises. The very first interaction between God and Abraham that we read about is filled with divine promise. You may wonder why we find in Joshua 24 too this uh, emphasis on Abraham's father and grandfather being idol worshipers. Why don't we get a little more narrative about Abraham's past? You would think that Genesis 12 would give us, say, at least a chapter walking us through, you know, Abraham was there in Ur and he's doing this and doing that. We get a little bit of that at the end of chapter 11, but we just don't get very much about Abraham's life before because quite frankly, it doesn't matter because the emphasis when we enter into Genesis 12, and what Paul wants to highlight is this, God sovereignly and graciously called and made promises to this man, Abraham. So listen to the very first interaction we get in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then here they are, those wonderful words. It's the only reason we're sitting here. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, Abraham. Promises. Abraham is inundated with promises. They seem to come totally out of left field. God's just chosen. He's just chosen this man and heaped up promises on his head. These promises were made to an old man whose wife was also old and even more barren. So Abraham is is a random guy. Now, he is in the line, obviously. We looked at that as we went through Genesis. He's in the line of Shem. But he's just just a guy. He's just a guy. And even more, he's the most unlikely person that you would find who would be a conduit for these sorts of promises. He's old and his wife is barren. It's like a double whammy. God is making himself known, his glory, his power, his sovereignty, his grace. Land, many descendants, worldwide blessing. These are the component parts of the promise that gets explained and clarified in the following chapters of Genesis. One of the things that was difficult when we were going through Genesis, I found as a preacher, as I went through the different chapters, is it seemed so repetitious. 
And you don't want to just get up and say the same thing over and over again. But in some ways, as we go through Genesis, as we were going through Genesis, it was like God was just saying the same thing to Abraham in different ways. But he was expanding and clarifying those promises. So we see a royal dimension later. Kings will come from you. We see that it's focused on one offspring, but it also involves many. So there's a, there's a plurality and there's a singularity. It's both and. and it's just unpacking. We see land as far as you can, can look. But then we get specific boundary markers for that land. And so from Genesis 12 onward, God is clarifying and explaining what these promises entail. But here... I love this. In Romans 4.13, Paul summarizes or defines this pack of promises with one brief phrase. That Abraham and his offspring would be heir of the world. Now that, that is breathtaking. God comes to this random person in Mesopotamia, And says, through you and your descendants, I'm going to reshape the whole cosmos. I'm going to reshape the whole world. This extends far beyond the land of Canaan. This means that God's promises to this one man are cosmic in scope. They act as a funnel for God's deliverance that he promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. That's what we pick up on when we come to Abraham. Adam and Eve, the first human beings, they put the world in disarray with their sin. They were over the world. God put them to have dominion over the world. And as they fell, the world fell. The world fell into corruption. Paul describes this in detail later in Romans 8. The creation given over to corruption and futility. This is the reason we have destructive powers in nature that kill. This is the reason we have natural evils like pandemics and so forth. The world is in a state of corruption. It's in a broken state. And God, from the very beginning, promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would undo that. He would deliver the world. He would deliver the descendants of human beings. He would deliver Adam and Eve themselves. And all these grand promises get funneled down, as we read those genealogies, that's why they're so important, through this one man, Abraham. And that's what God is doing, is he's taking one specific guy, taking him to one specific place, making it all very physical in nature because his wife's barren and he's old and he's got to trust God for one single descendant. He's doing all of this to funnel those cosmic promises through a man through whom the Christ would come, through whom he would give it to the whole world. Abraham is vastly significant In God's great story. In essence, God promises Abraham that he is going to bring salvation to the whole world through him. And this worldwide salvation ultimately involves at least these three things. The reign 
of Christ, Abraham's seed, the glorification of Christ's people, and the remaking of the created order, as I've just said. So let me read to you a few passages that get at these three things. So what's God promising to Abraham? Global inheritance. Worldwide inheritance. Psalm 2.8, God speaks to his Christ. Ask of me. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your, inherit, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Those are the words of the Father to his Son who became flesh to save us. Those are words spoken to the Christ who is the Son of Abraham, the Son of David. The ends of the earth are yours, the Father says to the Son. Matthew 5, 5, what does the Son do? What does he do with this possession? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He gives it to us who will reign over the earth, the second Adam, and who will reign with him. We will, those who are in the second Adam, in Christ. We will inherit the entire earth. Pick up some dirt. Put it in your hand. Pick up a rock. Rub the side of a tree. And know this, that the world will be remade and it is ours in Christ. Everywhere we look, into the starry sky, into a pond filled with fish, into a tree where we find all kinds of animals and into the faces of one another. We realize that all of it is ours forever through Christ. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. All of this. Guess what? Pandemics won't be remembered. Plagues won't be remembered. Catastrophes, earthquakes won't be remembered. All of this will pass away. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Christ will own it and we will own it with him. That's what God was telling Abraham he was going to do. That's what Paul is saying. And you know, in a political season, this has been a really weird year. Politically divisive, socially divisive. In the middle of a pandemic, in all of this, we need to be reminded who owns the world and who will reign forever. It's all Christ's. It's all Christ's. He already purchased it with his own blood. We await his return where he will remake everything. Christ owns the nations. Christ owns the land. Christ owns us. As we've already seen, Abraham's offspring are those who believe, whether Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised. As he says here in verse 13, the promise with its inheritance is through faith, not the law. That's the big contrast that Paul is working out here is because it is by promise, it is not through the law, but it is through faith. If you have any thoughts of pleasing God. So there are some 
who just have absolutely no concern for pleasing God or any God that they've come up with. But they do have gods they try to please. But if you're you're here this morning, you have any thoughts of pleasing God, it means you're on one of two roads. You say, I think about doing good and pleasing God. You're either, if you think that way, on one of two roads. Road number one is the road of relying entirely on God's promise. Period. God's promise. That's it. Banking everything on God's promise. His faithfulness. This is the road to the inheritance. This is the road to inheriting the earth. This is the road to everything I just described. But then there's road number two. Road number two is the road of law-keeping. Standard keeping. You have an idea of what God wants from you. Maybe somewhat informed by the Bible. Somewhat informed by your own imagination. Your own moral code that you've come up with. Or that you grew up with. You have an idea of what God wants from you. And in order to gain his approval. You try your best to meet that standard. I'm going to do my best. And I'm going to see how it works out in the end. Surely I won't fall too much because I am trying here. Let me say this to you. This is the road away from the inheritance. That's what Paul's saying. Road number two does not lead to the inheritance. It's not the road of promise. It leads away from promise. And as we'll see in a moment, this is a road to somewhere very different than everything I just described. So let's go to our second point. We see the promise defined, and now secondly, we see the promise upheld. Look at verses 14 to 15. So verse 13 describes the promise, defines it, and then here we see 14 to 15, the promise is being upheld. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs... Faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Law, with its law-keeping, does away with faith and promise. Does away with it. That's Paul's big idea here. The road to heaven is not paved by law-keeping. So, as I just presented those two roads, I want to ask you, which road are you on? Are you on the road banking everything on God's promise and his faithfulness? Or is there this sense in you that you're doing your best and trying to do it, trying to live a good life, and that in the end, you're trusting that God's going to look at you and see the good outweighing the bad? The road to heaven is not paved this way. If it were, faith and promise would be set aside or made of no effect. God promises. We trust him. That's God's way. But the way of man, the way of man is unbelief, idolatry, and self-reliance. Unbelief, idolatry, and self-reliance replace 
faith in the faithful God. There's either faith in the faithful God or there's all of those things wedded together. So why is the law so contrary to promise? What's the issue here? Law, promise. Law can't be there if promise is there. What's, what's, the, what's the conflict here? Why does the law render promise void or without effect? Paul's answer comes in verse 15. And if you're a little bit lost up to this point, I think this should be pretty clear. Verse 15, this is crucial to the entire section. It's pretty simple. Here it is. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law cannot save you. Keeping a standard, and specifically in Paul's day, the Mosaic law, the law given to Israel, keeping a standard cannot save anyone because the law exposes human sinfulness. The law is a mirror. Maybe you've heard it called that before. The law is a mirror. You know, it's amazing to me, when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, what a, what a hard passage that is to read. I mean, Jesus says, this is what it looks like. And you read the Sermon on the Mount and you feel like dirt because it's like, I am so far from that. I mean, he talks about hating your brother in your heart, talks about turning the other cheek, the man who looks lustfully, has committed adultery in his heart, not judging other people, not doing your deeds before the eyes of other. I mean, it's just, it's just whack, whack. It just slams you to the ground at every level. You read it, you're like, I've done all of those things. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is meant to do because it's meant to point us to Christ and life in Christ in the Spirit, but it's also what the law itself, which Jesus is explicating in the Sermon on the Mount, it's what the law itself is meant to do. We read it, and we're supposed to beat our breasts, beat our chests, as the tax collector did, and say, woe is me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, God. That's the effect of the law, because the law is a mirror. And the, re- the reflection that it produces is hideous. It's hideous. Romans 3.20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. The reason unbelievers don't like to read the Bible, well, there's a lot of reasons unbelievers don't like to read the Bible. But what will happen if you're an unbeliever here this morning and you pick up the Bible, you will be shown how sinful you are. That's what God wants you to know. As you read every page of the Bible, you'll be confronted with your sin. By his mercy, it is through that that God convinces the heart that there is no hope apart from Christ. There's no hope because we are sinful, deserving condemnation, and we look to Christ and we take hold of him. It makes sense of all those parables Jesus tells, especially the treasure in the field. You dig it up, you find it, and you bury it, and you go and sell everything you have, and you buy that field. Why? Because Christ is so precious. Because you're a sinner and you're condemned. You don't get that until you understand your sinfulness. Until you come to really recognize that you're a sinner before a holy God deserving hell. You'll never look to Christ 
dying on the cross for sin, redeeming sinners. Paul is saying that where there is law, there is law breaking. And where there is law breaking, there is the response of God's justice. That's Paul's logic here. God's just anger towards sin. That is what is meant by God's wrath. So let me say this to you if you're here this morning and you're wondering, you know, this whole idea of wrath, it's one of the most appalling ideas to an unbeliever that God would be wrathful. It's not what you think of when you think of God. You think he's so loving and, and, and squishy. But God is a God of wrath. We're told all throughout the Bible. He's a God of wrath. And what that means is not that God's just up there throwing lightning bolts like Zeus or uh, ready to strike you if you don't appease him with this or that sacrifice or, or act of devotion. No, what it means is that we have all rebelled against him. We have all committed injustice at every level, and God is just. And he is justly, righteously angry with sin, and he punishes it. That's a just judge should. When people commit acts of terrorism or murder and rape, They stand before a judge. We all cry out with righteous indignation. That is God-given. We're made in the image of God. You see it when there is a heinous crime committed. And you want justice and you're angry. That's a good thing. It would be utterly appalling for someone to commit a heinous crime and for you not to be responding with anger. That's because we're made in God's image. And that's the way God responds to all sin. So just imagine, this world is filled with heinous crimes, and God's the judge. That's the picture Paul gives us here. That's what is meant by God's wrath. Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Where there is law And there is law keeping to be right with God. There is transgression and curse and wrath. What then would happen to promise? Think about Paul's logic. That's the picture. What would would come of promise in that scenario? It would be done away with. Why? Because there can be no inheritance where there is wrath. How in the world are we going to inherit the earth? If all we have hanging over us is wrath because we are lawbreakers trying to attain a law we can't follow and obey because we're sinners. We transgress that law. John 3.36, I think, makes this point very clearly. Listen to the contrast. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. If you're thinking about a scripture to remember, to memorize, or a scripture to teach your children, to have them memorize. This is a great one. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let that just settle. Life and wrath do not coexist. You either have life or you have wrath. Where there is life or inheritance, wrath must be put away. 
And the only way wrath can be put away is if transgression is put away. And the only way transgression can be put away is if the law is put away with its legal demands that stand over us. Do you see the logic? Listen to the way Paul describes the Christian or the heir of the promise. Colossians 2, 13 to 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You see that life-death language that John uses. You who were dead, God made alive together with him, with Christ. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, listen to what he says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We are either under Christ alone, by faith alone, or we're under the law. And to be under the law is to be under wrath, not promise. The former makes us heirs of the world. The latter makes us children of wrath. That brings us to our final point this morning, the promise extended. We've looked at this promise to Abraham. What is it? How do we define it? How do we explain and understand it? Secondly, the promise upheld. Promise, if it is to be upheld, cannot be by the law. The inheritance cannot come by law keeping. And then finally, we come to the promise extended. Look at the final two verses, verses 16 to 17, as we finish up today. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Okay, who is Abraham? That's a big question. It runs throughout chapter 4. Yes, Abraham is, from the background, the beginning point of the Jewish nation specifically. We've talked about the significance of that. We came to chapter 3. We talked about how God has not set aside the physical Jewish nation. And we're going to see that in Romans 11. That God has a a future uh, work that he's going to do among the Jewish people. And there's much debate over the relationship between the church and Israel. And what Israel means in the New Testament. How we understand all of that. And we're going to get there. Romans 9 through 11 is, is devoted to those questions. So we definitely have that as an important part of answering the question, who is Abraham? He's the beginning of the Jewish nation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons. But Abraham's significance in God's great plan extends far beyond that. Abraham is the father of faith. That's who he is. That's how he's defined. That's how he's explained and described here. He is the father of faith. 
God's purpose was to set Abraham up as the prototypical believer. That's what God's doing in Genesis. He was called as a Gentile pagan and given promises by God. He didn't earn those promises. They were given to him by grace, as we talked about before. Circumcision and the law came later. Abraham was a Gentile before he was a Jew. It's kind of a way to think about it. And because he was a Gentile before he was a Jew, let me say it this way, because he was a believing Gentile before he was a believing Jew, he therefore is the father of all who believe, Jew or Gentile. He was given those promises as a Gentile and later given circumcision as a sign and seal of the covenant between him and God. His faith came before there was any Gentile Jew distinction. There was no Gentile Jew distinction when Abraham was called. He was just a man, a human being, someone who was in Adam, down from Adam. And you can see his, his, uh, his line there going all the way from Adam and Eve, through Seth, down to Noah, through Shem, down to Abraham. He's just a man. He's not a Jew, not a Gentile, really. He's just a guy. God gave these promises to him at that point. Galatians 3, 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And in verse 17, Paul quotes Genesis 17, 5. God's promise involves many nations. And this is something that many of the Jews had failed to see. Just think about it this way. The Jews had endured centuries and centuries of persecution from the pagan nations. They had been defeated militarily. They had been persecuted religiously. The Jews had grown to hate, in many ways, the Gentile sinners, whom they called the uncircumcision. They were the chosen people of God. They were the nation whom God had chosen. And yet, their own scriptures make clear that God's promise was to make Abraham into many peoples, was to make Abraham into many nations. I have made you the father of many nations. Yes, he was working through one nation, but his eyes were on all the nations. Remember, the God who is working through Abraham, who is working through Israel, is the God who spoke to Noah. He's the God who made promises to Adam and Eve. He's the God who took the patriarchs between Adam and Eve, we could call them patriarchs, all the way down to Abraham, who took and faithfully walked with them. We read about that in the early parts of Genesis. God is the God of all peoples. The promise is here being upheld once again. If the inheritance is through the law, then only the Jews would be heirs. It would just be for the Jews. And in actuality, we know that none of them keeps the law either. No one keeps the law perfectly. Not even the Jews who had the law. But because it is by faith, the promise is extended and made firm for all who 
believe. Believe in who? Believe in who? The God who justifies the ungodly. And here we see the God who graciously gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You may say you believe in God this morning, but do you believe in this God, the God of Abraham? Do you believe in the God who justifies the ungodly? Have you come to see that you are ungodly? Have you come to see that your sin is deserving of God's anger and wrath forever? Have you come to see that Christ is the only means of justification and that God, through Christ, can save you, though you be ungodly? Do you believe in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist? Do you believe in the God who gave a child to an elderly couple and a barren wife and who made a nation, many nations, through that couple? Do you believe in the God who can do the impossible? Do you believe in the God who sent his only son into the world to save sinners? That's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's the amazing thing about Christmas. It's a joyous time. It's a celebratory time. But written all over Christmas is human sinfulness. Because why on earth would the Son of God come here? Why? We forget where he came from. He came with one purpose, and that was to die for us on the cross. Christmas puts our eyes on Easter. And that puts our eyes on our sin and our need for a Savior. Have you trusted in this Savior today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gospel. It is the gospel of God. As Paul introduces it in the very first verse of Romans. Father, I pray that you would uh, use your word this morning as it has been preached to show us your great love for the ungodly, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that you reconcile to yourself enemies chosen simply by grace, by your mercy, by nothing we have done. Do you call us? But by your grace, we don't earn it. We don't muster up enough faith. We don't follow enough rules. This is the road to wrath. But God, we trust by your grace. We trust in this Christ whom you sent to save us. God, would you help us today to be more committed than ever to trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.